Hi, everybody, and welcome back. It's Krista Living Sober, and we're here for my next episode. Enjoy. Crystal Living Sober. We have Darren joining us today, and he is a recovery advocate, speaker, and a mentor. Can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, where you're yes, from, I'm... how long you've been sober? Uh, yes, thank you. Good morning. Uh, my name is Darren, and I have been sober for 13 years, be 14 years this next fall. And I live in Minnesota. I live in the suburbs of the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, south suburb, uh, Lakeville, Minnesota. It's a nice little community. It's probably one of the further uh, suburbs south, but I've lived in Minnesota my whole life. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And congratulations on the 14 years. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, if you don't mind, I could just share a little bit about my experience, strength, yeah. and hope, you know, what it was like, what happened, and ultimately what it's like for now and then feel free to you know just interrupt anytime if you have a question or if you think something would be uh useful to any of the listeners by any means or we can just wait till the end so i had a pretty normal or what i always thought was normal family life because i had two loving parents i grew up in a pretty small town in uh, the northern part of the state of minnesota and you know very good family life so i didn't really have anything you know, that I knew of that was going to lead me down a path of addiction or anything like that. But what I did have that I didn't know until many, many years later is I had untreated and undiagnosed ADHD. This has been the late 70s, early 80s. It wasn't really something that was probably diagnosed very often, if at all. But it did cause me to really struggle in school. I really had a hard time staying focused, paying attention, kind of wanted to screw around, uh, fell behind. At that time, were they medicating people for ADHD? I don't know that they were. I don't remember ever hearing about it, it actually until I was much older in like high school. So I don't know if they were, but it was mostly looked on as like you were just being a problem child. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, it, so it caused some problems. I really did struggle. I, one day I found out from my friends that another teacher was ridiculing me by telling his students the importance of education because they didn't want to sound like Darren Reed because he sounds like a Neanderthal. That's what he had said. And that was crushing to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew I wasn't the best student in my class. I knew that. But to hear that from a teacher just made me really feel like, yeah, that, that just confirmed that I was less intelligent than everyone else. Right. Um, but I was okay with it in a way because I, I, athletics were my thing. I was always looked at as one of the best athletes. I was always chosen first or, you know, like that kind of thing. So that was my thing. And, um, but that changed when I got to junior high school because, I started to, everything started to level out. I wasn't no, I was no longer the best athlete. In fact, there were so many older kids that I, athletics was, I was just average if that. And I was already behind in studies. So I really felt like I didn't have much for an identity or who I was. And then I found alcohol at a pretty young age in, in around seventh grade. And it immediately 
filled that emptiness inside. And it was like a light bulb went off inside my head too, saying, ah, this is how it feels to, you know, feel great and feel happy. And, and plus, you know, I also knew now, now that I had, um, anxiety issues, didn't know this for many years. So that helped calm those. I felt normal, relaxed. I felt able to talk to people and I really became the life of the party, which, you know, fed me, it gave me that identity and some purpose. I this is what I can be good at. This is how I can make people laugh and do things like that. Mm-hmm. And alcohol really became an obsession, just like we talk about all the time about our addiction, how it becomes an obsession. Pretty soon, the sports that at one time dominated my life no longer mattered, really. Alcohol did. Uh, I was always an active person. I did a lot of hunting, fishing, things like that. Now, if I was doing it, I had to be drinking. And of course, as time went on, those activities didn't even matter anymore. It was all about drinking. So it really dominated my life. I never really advanced further, but as I got close to graduating high school, I had to make a decision what I was going to do afterwards. And since I really didn't have a lot of skills in life, uh, I decided I would go off to college just because I didn't know what else to do. And college was obviously a place that could be dangerous for a young alcoholic because the the atmosphere is very alcohol friendly. A lo- all of us are away from our families for the first time. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have that watchful eye. So my alcoholism just got way worse. In fact, I got to the point where I was getting in trouble for um, failing too many classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I failed bowling. <laughs> How do you do that? how do you fail bowling right. and if you go fast well you just don't show up I never yeah. win and I was too lazy or drunk to mm-hmm. drop out of the course to avoid an F so I got an F and mm-hmm. that was pretty embarrassing um, and around this time I started to realize that I really have problems with alcohol and I thought you know if I took a semester off of school and got away from these people I could refocus and it it kind of worked I mean I didn't really drink during that few months off and I decided, okay, I'm going to go back and ready. Well, of course, it was the problem was still there, and I kept drinking, and I got to the point where I decided this was at a small community college in northern Minnesota, and I decided, you know, and if I move away, I will get away from these people. Everything will be better. This was my second attempt at stopping. Was the first time the two months? Yes. Yep. Withdrawals, like you knew it was no, a problem, or like actually, really no, yet. I didn't experience anything other than. In fact, I lost some weight, which was good. You know, things yeah. were really leveling for me. So I, mm-hmm. when I went back to college, I thought it would be great. But, mm-hmm. of course, all of the pressures and the issues were still there. So I started drinking again immediately and was just as bad. And so that's when I thought if I move away from this area, mm-hmm. you know, the geographical yeah. here. I've heard so many people try this, just like me at one point. You know, I think, oh, it's all this place where I'm living or it's these people. So if I get away... Mm-hmm. I'll be better. I moved to the southern part of the state to a a large college, Mankato State University. Around this area, it's very well known for a party school. So that was probably not my best decision. And I also was turning 21 at that point. So I was going to finally be legal to drink going into bars. And it was just a disaster. My drinking, my alcoholism probably got to the worst it ever was. I was drinking every single night to blackout drunk, not going to school. Um, I was finally on academic suspension where they actually kicked me out of the school and said, we don't even want your money until you can fix your life. You, you can't come back. So I had to take some time off. I still drank, went back to school, ready to focus. And that's when I had my first real problem that I identified and I, I got a DWI. How old were you? It was 21. I would have been 22 okay. or no, excuse me. I was still 21. Okay. And this DWI scared me sober basically because my alcohol level was 0.38. And I had remember when I woke up in detox the next morning, I remembered that when I was arrested, it was about two hours after I stopped drinking. So it really made me wonder what was my alcohol level, you know, while I was still drinking. And again, I had already known I had issues. So this is to the point where I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I have to stop. 
and it scared me sober. I went the next few months without drinking anything. And I, you know what, I was starting to have some, my schooling was getting better. And that's just a natural consequence. You know, if you're not drunk every night, of course, right. your studies are going to get better. Um, and I met with a, um, a probation officer. I wasn't on probation back then. A first time DWI, it was really a pretty minimal charge. And, um, but he did ask me what I was doing for myself because I told him I was sober and they, he asked me if I was going to AA and I thought, huh, I never even thought of that. And I said, you know, I'll try that. And to be honest, where I grew up in the northern part of the state, there probably back then weren't a lot of AA meetings. And I didn't come from a family of people that went to meetings, so I knew nothing about it. I knew it existed. I knew there was an organization called AA. I just knew nothing about it. So I looked one up, found a meeting that would uh, fit my schedule. And I went to my first meeting and I remember it was a Friday meeting that met at five o'clock. And so I went to my first meeting without knowing anything, went there by myself and I walk in and everyone is sitting in this big circle and there's like one chair open. So I just try to sl quietly sit down. Don't want to draw any attention to myself. I'm nervous, embarrassed, things like that. And the guy next to me reaches out and puts his hand to sh shake my hand. And he says, Hey, I'm Joe W. And I'm like, hey, that's weird because to a person that doesn't understand meetings who introduces themselves first name, last initial, right. You know? So I'm like, okay, I'm Darren R you know, and I shake his hand and I'm like, this is weird. And we talk a little bit. And then he asked me, uh, you know, how long I'd been sober. And I said a few months at the time, he's like, who's your sponsor? I'm like, sponsor. And he could tell by the look on my face, I didn't have one. And he starts telling me all the importance of it. And I was starting to get a little creeped out, but the meeting started and, uh, actually the meeting went great. And so by the end of the meeting, I thought, you know, I'll try this again. And so I decided that the next uh, time that meeting met was on Monday, same time, same place. So I went there. Now, if I'd been smart, I would have got there early so I could pick my seat. But of course I show up right at five and there's like one chair. And of course it's next to sponsored dude. Mm -hmm. And so I sit next to him and he right away, he remembered me and he's like all up on me about my sponsor again. And this is where I kind of made the decision. I'm never coming back. Just because overwhelming it is. And to me, what he, I didn't know what a sponsor was. Mm -hmm. The only time in my life I'd ever heard of a sponsor was when we were little kids and we did uh, fundraisers like jump rope for heart, you know, and you knock door to door and say, yeah, will you sponsor yeah. me in this fundraiser? That's what I thought. I was, I was really picturing myself having to knock on doors saying, will you sponsor me to be sober? <laughs> and I'm like, totally not going to do that. Yeah. Um, and this time also during the meeting, this guy talked about how after the meeting on Friday, he left and a couple of friends came to town who he hadn't seen in a long time and they needed a place to stay. So he invited them over and they had a bunch of alcohol. And he's like, and he started laughing. He goes, man, I drank, I drank all weekend. And, you know, there were a few people that chuckled with him and he's like, I know I shouldn't have, but you know, it was not, it's just that weekend. I can start over today. Mm -hmm. And people laughed, applauded, said, good job. Now, again, back then, I didn't understand the keep coming back concept. Mm -hmm. But what I was seeing is this guy kind of takes it like a joke. You know, he's just staying sober Monday through Friday mm -hmm. and partying it up on the weekend. And so from this my your sponsor, well, the sponsor, dude, this was the, another guy. It wasn't oh, that, okay, bad. Okay, okay. but I still had the bad idea because I knew in my life that if I, anytime I quit, if I, as soon as I had that first drink, I was like drinking nonstop. So I'm thinking I need to, I, this place is useful, useless for me. And plus that weird sponsorship thing was like, mm -hmm. I'm not coming back. And so I left and uh, I didn't go back. I just did it by myself and slowly, but surely I kind of started forgetting that I was even an alcoholic. And I think people ask me all the time, how I stayed abstinent during that time because I made it almost eight years. And on your so you made it eight years on your own sober without yep. AA without wow. Yep, absolutely. So and what were some of the ways that you stopped? 
really or like just it was just abstinent. yeah positive reinforcement that was really all it was because so i tried that meeting it didn't really work but right. all these good things were happening in my life because i wasn't drinking right you know all of a sudden i was getting good grades in college and so not only was i passing i actually made the dean's list Oh, and wow. I was getting close to graduating and I was going to get a bachelor's degree, which was just huge to me. Because if you remember when I was growing up, people, you know, made right. fun of me for not being smart and not being able to do anything in life. Um, and um, around that time, was your family involved in your life? Were they supporting you? Did they know about your drinking problem? <laughs> Yes, because I had that DWI, but they were supportive of me stopping. They didn't think I needed extra help or anything. They just figured I was just going to stop and continue to stay. So, yeah, they were supportive, okay. but they didn't think there was any need for any additional help. Um, and along with grades, I started to have better relationships. Instead of just like one night stands, I actually met a woman who was going to be my wife. Um and so relationships, all of that was really positive. And then once I did graduate college, um, I actually had a career. I was starting off, but I was a respected person of the community for, for my talents and my skills. And I had possessions. I had a, we owned a home and you know, I had a couple of cars, you know, a boat, you know, the, the American dream. Yeah. And so all of this was just great. Mm -hmm. But then life started hitting my wife who is now my ex-wife mm -hmm. started to have we started having a lot of problems and she had always been a pothead she smoked pot her whole life and i knew that when we met but i never cared because it was never anything i used i never smoked pot so i figured it wouldn't bother me right well it started to because for her that was her self-medicating mm -hmm. when we had problems she would run out to the garage and she would smoke up and she would come back in the house a little while later and she'd be like, you know, all smiles. And yeah. I knew what that was like. I, I mean, not that I smoke pot, but I knew that feeling of alcohol. Yeah, that used to like me. euphoric feeling. Yeah, that stress relief. The high. <laughs> yep. And I thought, I want that again. And I started to, as I mentioned earlier, over those years, I started to forget that I was even an alcoholic. In fact, I stopped telling people I was an alcoholic. And if people asked, and when I told them, they would say things like, oh, yeah, you were just a college student. You're much more mature now. You'd be fine now. Well, that's just Not what understanding our... the addiction. Yeah. yeah. Right. And that's just what our addicted mind wants to hear. When we hear things yeah. like that, we're like, oh, yeah, yeah. So one day I decided I could drink again. And that mm -hmm. first night I had 23 beers wow. after almost eight years of abstinence. Did you go out and, to a bar or was it alone in your house? Alone with, mm -hmm. I was with family, but it was after the family event. I bought a case of beer. And that's the only reason I knew I drank 23 years because yeah. there was one bottle left in the case in the morning. Mm -hmm. And my first thought when I woke up was, oh my God, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> because of that amount I drank and the fact that I drank to a blackout drunk. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm like, I, I can't do this. And I... I tried to stop right away, but I couldn't. I was drinking every day again, and I knew I had problems. Since my marriage was already in a bad state, I found a treatment center that I could go to, and I went to Hazelden. And you know, Hazelden is known as one of the best treatment centers in the world. And I was lucky because it was near me. And it was at treatment. The first day I got there, they handed me a stack of books. And of course, one of them was the big book and I started reading and all of a sudden it was an epiphany. The light bulb came on. Mm -hmm. Now I knew what they meant by getting a sponsor. Okay. Now I knew what they meant about keep coming back and working the program. All those things that I didn't get that first meeting and that confused me, mm -hmm. that made me, you know, turn against it made sense now. And, and as I was- your, Did you put yourself into the treatment? Yes. Nobody yep. was like, you need this. Yep. It was all on my own just because I knew I, I needed yeah. to stop. And, and, and I wanted. I kind of had a spiritual awakening. That was yep, like just basically the aha exactly. moment. I, yeah, I need help. Yeah. And I have seen in my life that I can't do it on my own. And so while at treatment, my relationship with my wife was still really bad. And she refused to do any part of family counseling because she looked at this as all a me issue, a mm -hmm. character defect. And 
you know, Darren needed to work on this himself and she didn't want anything to do with that. She just wanted me to be sober and the dad I've always been because I was always the most hands-on with our daughter. I did all the parenting with her and the playing and the stuff like that. That's what she wanted. She wanted somebody to take care of all that so she could do her own thing. Um, in fact, when I was leaving treatment center, my counselor said something to me that I'll never forget because he knew the way she was treating me and the way she looked at addiction. And he said to me, there's a really good chance that someday in your near future, you're going to have to decide if you want to stay married or stay sober. And I thought I could do both. And I'm like, I'm going to tough this out. I'm going to get home and I'm ready. And Hazelton set me up with a safety net, basically, I like to call it, because before I left, they they had me decide on a, a home group, that meeting that I could go to. They set me up with a temporary sponsor who was an alumni of Hazelden. And they set me up with aftercare so that I would do some outpatient group. And I was excited, ready to go. And when I got home, that situation with my wife was a disaster. She was not supportive. In fact, I used to have to fake working so I could go to a meeting because she just expected me to magically be sober. She had so many resentments. And I'm not saying that they weren't, you know, warranted, but she expected immediate, you know, making amends and all of this. And I just wasn't ready yeah. at that point mentally. And I was just getting home and it was mm-hmm. a disaster. Uh, well, it sounds like she didn't really understand the whole not at all. thing. And she might have had her own addiction maybe and wasn't ready to accept Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's difficult for her because she was struggling with her own, but also this is a thing I've learned over the years is why it's really important for families, people that are married to make sure their spouses understand, you know, really what the stages of change are and everyone, it takes a little bit of time and there's work involved. It's all different for everyone, but it's not just a magic cure. We don't just go in and come out magically cured for life. And um, so, yeah, she, she didn't get that. And the first meeting I went to was really not very good. I was used to meetings in a treatment center where I'm sitting around a bunch of guys that are all at that same level. You know, we're all about a month clean. Whereas now in this meeting room, everyone was like 10 years sober or longer and they all seemed to know each other. And I just did not feel a connection. Mm-hmm. And the aftercare group was awful. I, I quit that immediately. I didn't have to be there. So I quit that. And the temporary sponsor never called me back. Maybe, I don't know, maybe if he changed his number or who knows. Um, But pretty soon I was almost on my own again. And then I decided because of the meetings not being the way I thought, I felt I was different than everyone. Didn't Mm -hmm. feel that connection. Not necessarily better than them. I just didn't feel like. You felt unique, unique. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm like, I'm done with this. Mm -hmm. And I tried to go alone again. And that emptiness returned almost immediately. Um, I felt alone. It didn't take very long before I just relapsed and went out and drank again. Now my wife kicked me out of the house. We were getting legally separated. And how long did you have sober when you went to treatment? After treatment, I was sober about six months before I started drinking again. Okay. And so then when uh, she kicked me out of the house, I was fully drinking again. And now I had... Kind of like when I first went off to college, nobody to watch me. I was sad. I was down because I was separated from my family. We, my ex and I are, were not close, but I was so close to my daughter and it was so difficult being away from her that I was drinking to blackout drunk every night again. And it was soon I got another DWI. Um, and because of that, I lost my job, which was a great career and was really hard on me got put on probation this time and they required that I go to meetings and bring a meeting attendance card and have people sign those. And that was humiliating and embarrassing. And it wasn't long where I started just faking those and signing, forging my own name. And then I got another DWI, my third DWI. And this one was more serious because in the state of Minnesota, your third DWI carries a minimum of one year in jail. Um, But on top of that, my daughter was in the car. Oh no. And this actually was my true awakening because when I went to jail, I woke up and my first real thought, maybe you could call it my epiphany, was that I am truly powerless. I have, 
we learned those in those steps and I always embraced it before, but I guess I never really believed it. Now I truly believe I was powerless over alcohol because I was always a great dad. But this incident proved to me that I would still put alcohol over my daughter. And I knew then that I really needed to make some changes. Um, and after jail, I was put on the longer term probation and they were on me about meetings and things like that. I still wasn't liking meetings, so I would fake meetings every once in a while. I got caught forging my meeting card and I got sent to jail. And for and I was so upset by this because I was I didn't drink, mm -hmm. but you know, I obviously wasn't following probation. Right. And it was at this time that another really good thing happened in my life, and that was the realization that. I was going to be owned, for lack of better words, by probation for at least a year. So I needed to either follow their rules or execute my sentence and just sit in jail. Well, I didn't want to do that, of course, because I, I miss my daughter. So I decided when I got out of jail, I was going to go to a new meeting every time. And if I didn't like How long it. Did you, did you do the whole year in jail? No, no, I didn't. I did only about 21 days. Okay. And so when I got out. I started with the first meeting and if I didn't like it, I was going to take a Sharpie to it and be like, you're dead to me. You know, that was my way of being powerful over meetings, my sick mind at the time. And I did that a few times until one night while sitting in a meeting, I heard the best words I'd ever heard. And they were mine in my head. Mm -hmm. Now it wasn't any magical wisdom, but it was the words me too because I was saying it to another guy while he was sharing his story. And I'm thinking, oh my God, me too, mm -hmm. me too. This was a spiritual connection. This was that spiritual connection they've always talked about. I was finally having, I was connecting to another human being and I was just blown away. And after that meeting, I, I went to talk to him right away. And he explained how after those meetings, he and a bunch of guys in recovery go out to eat. And did I wanna go along? My first thought was to say no, because I was so used to isolating and not doing anything outside of those meeting rooms. But I thought, I'm going to go. And it was great. We, we talked a little bit about recovery, but we mainly just talked about life. We laughed, we ate good food, and it was amazing. And so for the next few months, that meeting became my home group. And I really went just to eat. <laughs> and not, not necessarily it to just to eat, but it was for that fellowship afterwards. And because of that, I started to branch out and go to other meetings with these guys. In fact, I started going to meetings that at one time I crossed off and said, you were dead to me and now liked them. And I started realizing it was never about the meeting. It was about my mind and where I was at, that closed off feeling that I, and the little I was putting into it and meetings started to work for me. Uh, I started to go to many meetings and now they were helpful to me. And I didn't look at others as different than me because I realized that, Hey, we are all the same, yeah. basically that we have a struggle, a common struggle. Mm -hmm. And I just kept on going to meetings. But on top of that, I did get a sponsor and it was that guy I first talked to in that meeting. His oh, name's really? Kevin and he's still my sponsor. Hi. And Kevin and I started working together on things and I started to feel, tell them though, even though the meetings were working for me, I was still feeling this emptiness. I just didn't feel like I had an identity anymore or anything fun in life anymore because all of the things I used to do for fun revolved around drinking pretty much or drinking people. Well, Kevin suggested that I go for a run, which was funny to me because I hated running for one. I wasn't very good at it, but I agreed and I ran this one day, I ran a mile during the run. I was like feeling like I was going to die. Mm -hmm. And when I got done, I, I thought I'm never doing this again, but that was only for a second. Cause all of a sudden I realized I felt great. I'm like, Hey, I accomplished something. I ran a full mile. And of course I was having a runner's high. I didn't know, understand about that endorphins, you know, and how exercise makes that happen. I just knew I felt great. And so I was going to do it again. Well, this next time while running, again, I was really, really tired, but I noticed by my watch that I was a little bit faster that time. That felt great. That little bit of competitiveness in me. And again, still the runner's high. So I continued that and that became a, 
really solid part of my recovery. It really helped me. And I still was a terrible runner. I, but I, I started to make some goals and I registered for a 5k run and I completed it. I might've been last or close to last, but it didn't matter because I I finished something that I accomplished something. And it was always, every time I did it, I felt so great. Plus going to meetings and being with other people in recovery, life was really moving forward for me. And that became the solid foundation of my recovery. And part of what it's like now for me is that same thing. What I learned over that time was there's so much more to a person's recovery than one, doing it by themselves, or even if you go to meetings, it's outside of those meetings. Mm -hmm. Fellowship with other people that are in recovery, some kind of connection to those people, constant connection, lest we forget. I've learned this so many times that there's a saying that people use all the time, hindsight is 2020. And that's not true for us alcoholics or addicts, in my opinion, because for me, I will forget about those bad things in a week or two. I could, the worst things can happen. I fall in the worst rock bottom possible. As soon as I climb out of that hole, I'll forget if I don't stay engaged in a program or stay engaged with people that are in recovery. So for me, that became a real solid foundation. I learned that there are many paths to recovery, many different components of a healthy recovery for me again. You know, I know if people listening, this is, I'm not trying to say this is exactly what anyone else should do, but what it's like for me now. And basically my life has become to the point where I monitor myself to make sure I have what I consider the four pillars of recovery, which is home, health, purpose, and community. And I think about home because when I first left treatment, my home life was awful. And I know a lot of people in early recovery have that same situation with a, either a spouse and a, a boss, you know, whomever, their parents. And I'm not saying it's not just maybe because as alcoholics and addicts, we do a lot of things, you know, I, I did a lot of bad things, but we still need to be able to be in a safe and place that's conducive to recovery where people aren't against us, where people aren't shaming you daily and things like that. Um, so my home is like that nowadays. Um, and having my health, uh, of course, not just my, my mental health, because that's important, but emotional health and physical health. One of the things I've learned over my life is as an addict, I will self-medicate if there's anything bothering me, if I'm not in a good spot. And so if we let our health get bad, I find that we're more likely to treat it with bad things. So I think that's an important part of it. And then of course, the purpose. This is one of the things I find is the most integral for people early in recovery because so often when I hear of a relapse from someone I'm working with, one of the first things they say is they feel bored and that feel that emptiness return inside and they want to go back to drinking because that's what used to make them feel good. That's what made me feel good. As I mentioned way back when I was young, that alcohol made me feel alive. It filled that void. Well, that's where for me, I didn't know it at the time, but when my sponsor got me out running, that was something that was filling that void on the inside, giving me some purpose, something to keep trying for and to accomplish. And that is huge because again, for a lot of us in early recovery, we're starting over. You know, I'd lost my job. I had a, so when I had to start over, I had a really crappy job. It was really hard to think of that as something meaningful. So I had to find ways that gave me purpose. A lot of people get that from meetings on them by themselves. And that's great. But I'm just saying for some people that doesn't happen. And that was another reason why I constantly make sure that I have purpose in my life and the last piece that community is again i have learned that i need healthy community and that that connection i mean human beings we're spiritual beings we need communication with others and if we don't have that we really feel alone 
And for me, that's one of those reasons that meetings will always be part of my life. Here I am going on 14 years. I've had plenty of people ask me if I still need meetings. And my answer is always yes. And I, but I quickly add, that doesn't mean I'm like white knuckling it and close to drinking every second of the day. That's not never the case. The desire to use has been removed, but I know that if I stopped going to meetings and stopped hanging out with people in recovery, there's a chance that someday I might start thinking, you know what, you could control it this time. Mm -hmm. And I don't ever want to get that thought again. So that's why I continue those meetings and why it's important to me. And the last thing I will share before I, you know, check to see if you have any questions is Mm -hmm. another thing that I've learned in my life is scheduling my recovery is essential because like meetings, there was a time in my life where I would miss meetings for weeks at a time. This is way back in like year one or two, only because I didn't have them scheduled into like my planner or my phone or whatever. And I would just leave it to when I felt like it. Well, when I feel like it is probably never because not that I don't like meetings anymore, but by the time a work day is over and you get home, you're tired, you're exhausted. You don't want to go out here in Minnesota. There's a lot of days where it's well below zero. You don't want to go outside, you know, so you don't and you start missing meetings and pretty soon a week becomes two and then pretty soon it becomes a month. Well, that's the same thing with those other parts of my life. I make sure that I schedule routine uh, health visits. I make sure that I schedule meditation into my life. My gym time is scheduled. Now I don't run as much. I lift because my knees are going bad, but I schedule those into my day because again, if I just leave it to when I have time, I might not go. And I know what that will, of how that will affect me down the long haul. So the, for me, part of my successful recovery and going forward is doing those things I mentioned, but also putting them in my schedule so that I know that Every Monday at seven o'clock, I have a meeting I'm going to go to. Um, Other nights of the week, I have some I go to with some of my sponsees. It's not a thing I make sure, but my for sure meeting is Monday nights. I have a meditation night. I have another night where I do some other things, but then I, and I have my gym time, of course. So these things together have transcended my recovery and have put me to the point where today living this way, I, the promises have been reached and exceeded so many times. I love talking about the promises, especially to new folks, because I feel like I was one of the most impatient people in the world when I started recovery. I wanted all those things I lost now. I didn't want to wait a week, month, let alone years. And I really struggled in early recovery until I met that sponsor of mine. I really struggled with that. I'd always hear these promises and I thought they'll never come true for me. But by working the program the way I did, all of a sudden things started to change. I got my driver's license back. Then I was able to buy a car. It was really a crappy one. (laughs) It was terrible, but it, it drove. I got a little better job. All of a sudden I was able to afford a little better living situation. I got a better car. I got a better job. Things kept on changing for the good. And those are just material things. Not even talking about where my mind was getting better at letting go of things. I never, I didn't feel so much resentment towards my ex-wife. I was able to start working those steps, not only forgiving, but doing my amends. Things just continue to get better and better. And to the point where, like I said, my life right now is the best it's ever been. And I know if I keep doing what I am doing, it'll continue that way. Yeah. That's amazing. I love your story. I can relate to so many different things that you talked about. I also got, well, not three, but two OUIs in Massachusetts. So I had to deal with all of that. I went to jail for 60 days as well. So that was an experience, but that, you know, those two things that happened to me didn't make me stop. My rock bottom had to be me ending up in the hospital having a like a out-of-body experience for me to stop but I eventually did good for you and (laughs) it is amazing like when you share that how different things for each of us that are so bad but yet it doesn't necessarily make us a stop you know when the first time I 
spent a night in jail. It was so awful. I thought I'm never going back. And then pretty soon, two days doesn't seem so bad anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it becomes a new normal for you. And I honestly, for me, I don't know that it would have ever been so awful had my daughter not been in the car that day. And I'm so grateful yeah. to that. I never hurt anyone physically of with, course, you know, same. with my behaviors, yeah. but I am also grateful that something like that was able to happen mm-hmm. that I was able to make a change and it was before she completely gave up on me so I was able to patch my relationship up with her and you know move forward and things like that so I am I am really blessed I still go to meetings with folks that really did lose their family where people just said nope we're done with you and they still haven't had a chance to you know re- repair any of that damage and I feel so fortunate that you know, I was able to repair the family damages and just move forward. Right. And I love the four pillars that you mentioned, the home, the health, the purpose, the community, like all of that is so important in yeah, recovery. Thank yeah. I think so too. And one of the things, so I work, I'm lucky now too, I get to work in substance use disorder. I work for the state of Minnesota in the alcohol and drug abuse division. So I get to be part of this. And that's one of the things that I hope to start getting more uh, of the whole body wellness incorporated into treatment, you know, and some treatment centers do a great job of that already, but I just feel that so many of us in early recovery could benefit from that, those good, healthy hobbies. I mean, it's scientifically proven that any physical activity is so great for our brains. And so many of us, our brain chemistry is messed up from all the drugs and alcohol we put into it. Mm -hmm. And it'll come back. It gets better, but over time. And so many people don't wait that time. You know, they feel miserable for a week and they're like, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. And I just think about how many benefits I got from doing those healthy activities, Mm -hmm. how it made me feel. And it gives me a lifelong um, healthy activity that I can continue to do because I need those things. Of course. We all do. Yeah, physical health is just as important as mental health for sure. I mean, I know when I was in the Salvation Army, um, in the girls section, they only had like 10 pound weights and a treadmill. But every time, you know, I went on that treadmill and ran for like 30 minutes to 45 minutes to an hour, those moments just like I realized that I could focus on something different than worrying about like my past or my addiction. And it made me feel better. Like, yeah. Absolutely. And then, just that. Yeah. And then still today, like even just doing yoga, meditating, just staying healthy, eating healthy, like it helps so much. And it's a, an important part to recovery. I think not a lot of people realize that. It definitely is. And again, when I say this, I always want people to know too, I'm not saying trying to diminish the importance of right. meetings or things like right. that. They're still important. I mean, it's just All of it. All of it. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, for me, again, having these other things makes my whole life complete. Yeah. And again, uh, it's something that just, I always like talking about because I want others to be able to at least know this as an option so that if yeah. it helps them, great. Cause I know yeah. it helped me so much. I love that. What message or life lesson have you learned from your own recovery that you can share with others? My biggest life lesson is I mean, I talked a little bit about the things that work for me, and those are all things that I believe in firmly. But if I had to summarize it in one thing would be to stay connected to some type of community of people in recovery. For me, the easiest way to do that is meetings, of course. But Mm -hmm. I only I say that because I think all how many times have we been to a meeting and heard somebody that had 20 or 30 years of recovery time that went out and used again and almost always they say it's because they stopped being involved with the people that the recovery world mm-hmm. and our minds, that addictive mind is a tricky thing. It always kind of lurks there as soon as it has an opportunity. And I, I really believe that um, we could be susceptible if we stopped working our program of recovery. I, I truly believe yeah. that that's probably the biggest thing is to stay involved in something that's working for you, whatever that is. If it, I hope it's going to meetings, but if not, you know, if you find some other community where people in recovery hang out, stay with them because being with them is going to keep your mindset always on the need for recovery. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know what I noticed? Like the recovery scene is becoming so big online, which I feel like that wasn't a thing even years ago. Definitely. And that's kind of an amazing tool that people are going to be able to use jumping on an app or online or you know instagram tiktok whatever facebook like it's all coming together and there's like this huge recovery scene so absolutely one, one, I love, one click away <laughs> i i love seeing that too because again i've talked to a few people that started their recovery journey by following people on social media that are in recovery and one of the things that amazes me is that their first lesson that they learned was that people can recover and live happy lives. So when we post on social media, our happy lives and people know we're in recovery, that seeing is believing, you know, we, you can read things in books, but for people new to recovery or people that are sober curious, that's not as convincing as seeing you living an amazing life and saying, Oh, and Krista's also in recovery wow, I, that I could be happy if I was doing that. So I think that is huge. You're right. So when, mm -hmm. when we online share that we are in recovery and also living our great life, people see that and say, yeah, that's possible. Recovery works. Yeah. And I hope that people listen and do see that because mm -hmm. yeah, sobriety is amazing. It's just an amazing life when you become sober compared to when we were in active addiction. It's magical. It really is. There's a lot of, you know, cliches and I think they're all accurate for, and they're a little different for oh, everyone, yeah. but yeah, the freedom from addiction freedom. Is, yeah. is, is just amazing. Mm -hmm. Now, do you still have support in your life today? Like family still, you said sponsor, you have a yep. wife and your kids. Yep, absolutely. And That's everyone awesome. are very supportive. In fact, if I ever wanted to drink again, I would go have to go by myself or with strangers because nobody that yeah. knows me and loves me would ever participate in that with me right. um and That's it's funny. not to say that if i did they wouldn't like disown me i think they'd be there for me there but i'm just saying that everyone understands that recovery is a lifetime decision for me mm -hmm. and uh you know so that is great i don't have ever a pressure to drink nobody ever says hey just one well you know because everyone knows and they're not even going to bring that up so there and again that's part of that home piece too for some folks early in recovery i have heard from so many people that just going to family events can be a trigger because everyone wants them to drink nobody realizes how detrimental that is to them early on so that's one of those things that i'm really fortunate you know now it's mm -hmm. i have a very stable life and yes everyone that i'm involved with very supportive my daughter who i told you was in the car with me she's now 22 and she'll be graduating college just spring and we have a great relationship so yeah, i'm really awesome. blessed yeah. and finally um what are you most grateful for today and why i would honestly say the fact that i found healthy hobbies in my life yeah. i just feel i mean obviously my recovery but yeah. i just go in a step further because i think that is one of the things that enables me to get up in the morning and keep going with a positive attitude is finding something meaningful in my life that I can continue to do forever. And mm -hmm. without that, you know, I'm sure I could find other things, but like I said, right now, that's one of the things I'm most grateful for. I'm lucky. And I say that because not everyone can do that. There are some people that physically their body's too injured. They don't have mm -hmm. the mobility. There's many restrictions. You know, I'm lucky. I, I still have the ability. I can do those things. So I'm very grateful that I'm able to get out and do the things that I enjoy. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to add for the listeners or audience or any advice? I mean, you had so much great advice and I really loved listening to your story. Well, if I could just share one little thing quick, yeah. as you mentioned earlier, I'm an advocate. Mm -hmm. So one thing I'd like yes. to advocate for today is, is for us to start thinking about the things we say, we, we need to remove the stigma associated with addiction and recovery because it, it is a barrier for many people, but sometimes we stigmatize ourselves. And how I mean that is we still say things like relapse is part of recovery. And we need to stop saying that because mm -hmm. relapse happens during those stages of change, when a person is start, starting out, when they're not sure how they're going to do it, that's when it happens. But when a person is in long-term recovery 
in maintenance or, you know, like you and I, like many other people, relapse isn't part of that. And the reason why this is so significant is if we don't change that language, then the rest of society always thinks that we could relapse at any moment, no matter how many years or how solid we are in our recovery, because we ourselves are saying that. Um, I think there's a very important part that we need to let people know that in those stages of change, when a person is first starting out, Mm -hmm. that yes, that is normal and to keep coming back so that that is needed. But I think we need to also distinguish that once you're in long-term recovery, if you're working your program of recovery, relapse isn't part of it. You're in long-term recovery. Right. I like that. Yeah. So I have three years and the only thing that gets me is the thoughts, the thoughts of relapsing. But I never acted. But I think is that because I I have such like a everything in place, like a sober fiance, like I have sober hobbies, like, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. Because, you know, like we they talk about in the programs, the desire to use will be removed. And that truly was. I never yeah. have the desire. But like you, every once in a while, mm-hmm. might start from a dream, like a dream where I used yeah. or something like that. And that always gives me for the me for me it was like emotions like I I'm I'm pregnant so like my depression came back and then along with that came these thoughts and I'm like great you know what I mean like they weren't there for the longest time and I recently got a medication and it's helping but yeah it's like wow because mm-hmm. <laughs> that desire was removed completely thank you so much for coming on my podcast yeah thank you so much for having me so i can share my my story and hopefully it'll help someone yeah i'd like to have you back sometime we can talk about like anything (laughs) absolutely i would love it just just let me know anytime you have availability i'd be glad to share whatever you think would be useful awesome well thank you so much and thank you and have a wonderful weekend yes thanks as well thank you bye-bye goodbye Oh, 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 oh,